two words. Flying lizards. How did it happen? Evolution. Evolutionary history is complicated. It can sometimes be helpful to look at funky animals to see what their unusual traits tell us about their history. For example, our guest today, Dr. Jim McGuire, studies the evolutionary correlates of size, color, and flight in lizards. This is Radio Bio. Hello and welcome to Radio Bio. I'm Jeff. And I'm Kinsey Brock. Today we're joined by Dr. Jim McGuire, curator of herpetology and professor at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome, Dr. McGuire. Thank you. So can you give us a little more introduction about yourself, who you are, what you study, kind of your background? Uh, Sure. So I'm a herpetologist, so I study reptiles and amphibians. Uh, That's my specialty. Most of my field work is in Indonesia, so I do my studies are primarily associated with reptiles and amphibians of Southeast Asia, Indonesia. Um, I also study hummingbirds. (laughs) Hummingbirds, all right. I ended up working on this group of lizards called flying lizards. The genus is Draco. That name has been, it's now forever connected with uh, Harry Potter and such, right? So everybody knows the word Draco, (laughs) but it means dragon, right? So um, so I ended up working on flying lizards based on... uh, based on my initial sort of survey of project ideas and such when I was a yeah. when I was a student there. I wanted to do comparative biology. Okay, what's that? Comparative biology <laughs> is um, you know, I wanted to to look for you know, interesting evolutionary relationships that you could evaluate by looking across many species. And essentially um, what you need in order to do those sorts of studies is many replicated sort of natural experiments where the same uh, process or function or adaptive trait has evolved multiple times independently in different lineages. And Mm -hmm. if it's happened enough times, you can ask whether whether there are underlying correlations between the adaptive trait and something. You know, and and that's all the the, the more specific I was thinking about it at the time. I wanted to to, to use, I I was a phylogenetic systematist, so I built evolutionary trees of organisms for, as part of my master's work. I knew I wanted to keep doing that. And, uh, and so I was looking for a system where there was a a group of probably lizards, because I was already studying lizards, yeah. you know, lizards that had enough species in the group that you could actually address a question in a statistical framework, um, and yet didn't have so many species that it was impossible to do the phylogenetic analysis, which is obviously a complicated sort of process uh, involving collecting DNA sequence data for lots of individuals. And you know, the more individuals, the more difficult it is. So phylogenetics is the study of the evolutionary history and relationships among species. And we can make phylogenetic trees using computer algorithms that take genetic data and make connections between species based on similarities in their genetic sequences. So when Jim goes out and collects different lizard species to study their traits, like their body or wing size, he needs to take into account how related those species are to each other. And phylogenetics allows him to do this. And so I was looking for a group that kind of met this sort of you know, in the middle yeah, this characteristics, thing. yeah, this Goldilocks <laughs> thing where it's diverse enough but that you can do something interesting but not so diverse that it's an overwhelming problem to even make the tree. Mm-hmm. And so I was just working my way through the iguanian tree of life, thinking about the various groups like like uh, fence lizards, like Scalabras and mm-hmm. various other groups. And I got to Draco 
And I thought, I only knew there was one species of Draco. You know, Drake, the famous Draco Volans, the flying dragon. Mm-hmm. You know, and it turned out there were about 20 species recognized at the time. And I thought, that might not be enough, but maybe there's really more of them. And so I just started exploring the possibility of studying this group. They seemed really cool, so it would be fun to study them. It was in a difficult place. And I had never even contemplated working in Asia before, mm-hmm. which is where they occur. Um, and so, you know, I just started thinking about what are the possibilities. And to be honest, my first thought was that I would try to test the some models that have been developed for anolis lizards uh, in terms of ecomorphology evolution. The idea with the anoles is that you have phenotypes that have evolved convergently many times over and over again that allow the lizards to specialize on a particular part of a tree. Mm -hmm. You know, they can be a trunk ground specialist or they can be a trunk crown specialist or a crown giant. Convergent evolution is really cool. Yeah, this is when species that are not closely related evolve similar traits, like bat wings and bird wings. Some famous evolutionary studies in the Caribbean islands on anolis lizards have found that different species evolve similar traits independently in similar environments. This can lead to species that are not closely related to each other, but look very similar. These are called ecomorphs. And you get the same phenotype evolving convergently multiple times in different, on different islands, um, always to sort of solve the same ecological problem. And I thought, well, flying lizards actually have multiple sympatric species, multiple species that live in the same environment together and somehow don't compete with one another or don't compete with one another to such an extent that they drive one another extinct. Mm-hmm. And so maybe they actually have, have similar... Uh, ecomorphs as the anoles do. That was my first thinking. But the more I thought about it and the more I looked at the size variation there was within the group, because there are little species and medium species and large species, then I started thinking about that, how that size variation might have important consequences for gliding flight, which is what flying lizards are actually most famous for. They're called flying lizards because they can glide. And so that got me thinking about scaling relationships, which I'd never really thought about before. Um, Shape relationships. You know, dinosaurs were often thought to be warm-blooded primarily because of a concept called thermal inertia. And so if you have a giant dinosaur, they have so little relative surface area relative to their volume mm-hmm. that it's hard to imagine their temperature changing very fast just because they don't have much surface exposed to the air around them. It, they're mostly internal volume. Mm-hmm. And the same sort of relationship applies to the, the part of the animal that's generating lift during flight like wings. So if a flying lizards, if they scale what we call isometrically, meaning if they're scale replicas of one another, the same shape, mm-hmm. a larger individual will have much less surface area for lift generation than will a smaller individual because the area of the lift generating surfaces grows at a slower rate than the volume and therefore the mass. Yeah. And so um, and so my thinking was if they scale isometrically, then the big ones should be poor gliders. And if they don't scale isom- isometrically, if they scale allometrically, if the wings become proportionally larger as the lizards get bigger, then that would also be a really interesting evolutionary outcome. And so I decided to pursue that as the topic of my my dissertation. Turns out they scale isometrically. They're scale <laughs> replicas. The big ones don't glide well. So what are they gliding from? Like, what's this behavior even about? Why are they gliding? Is it an escape mechanism? Why are they flying lizards? Well, yeah. Well, great question. So uh, flying lizards, or, you know, they're gliding from tree to tree. So they're arboreal. They live on trees. They live in the world's tallest rainforest in Southeast Asia. Huh. And, uh, and so gliding has evolved over and over again in that part of the world. Flying lizards, flying squirrels, flying snakes. A lot of these species in this region of the world have evolved these traits for a life in the trees. Convergent evolution much more frequently there than in other parts of the world. And we think the explanation for it is that the trees are taller 
So it's a bigger, you know, physiological challenge to climb. If you're going to go from one tree to another, if you have to climb all the way to the ground and walk across the ground and then climb back up again, if you're, if the canopy is very high, then that's a much more energetically costly thing to do. Um, And it's also another feature of of the dipterocarp forests. That's the family of trees that dominate in this part of the world. Another feature of these forests is that the canopies tend not to interdigitate with one another or connect with one another with lianas and various things. So it's harder to walk through the canopy. And so that means there's probably stronger selective pressure for either gliding gliding or jumping from tree to tree. So that's where they live. They glide, you know, they glide between trees. Uh, and they do so using these crazy wings that are uh, derived from their ribs. So when you think about wings, you typically think about arm-like, you know, in birds, it's their arms, right? Mm-hmm. But in flying lizards, their wings are actually ribs that are elongated and they can open and close kind of like a Japanese or Chinese fan. Mm-hmm. And so they, they're closed when they don't need to use them for gliding or for display. And then when they're ready to glide, they can open up their wings and, and jump and and uh, passively glide from one tree to another. They also have a little wing in the front on the neck that's supported by the hyoid skeleton yeah. uh, of the throat, and that <laughs> opens as well. They think of that as a it's something called a canard wing, and uh, that's yeah. Most pe- some people will know what a canard wing is. People who are into f- into like airplanes and such will know. Yeah. They have those funky airplanes that are reversed, where they have a big wing in the back and a small one in the front. That's a canard wing. So Draco's have one of those too. Since you can't all see Jim doing his wonderful display of a canard wing, I just want to point out that he's holding his hands up in the shape of a wing coming out the sides of his throat. So this small wing on the sides of the neck can actually help with stability and lift when gliding. If you don't know what a Draco Volans looks like, go Google it. They're amazing. Yeah, and so in terms of what they use their gliding for, I mean, they use it for everyday activity. I mean, it's their common, it's just their general means of locomoting through the forest. It's much more efficient to glide from tree to tree than it is to walk. And that's been shown with physiological experiments of flying squirrels and such, actually. Not with flying lizards, but with flying squirrels. But they use it as an escape mechanism. So when flying snakes, for example, attack a flying lizard, you know, or try to get one in the tree, you know, the flying lizard will fly away. But they also chase one another during during territorial interactions. If a male sees a female, he'll glide to her. So they just glide all the time. I mean, they're really effective. I've seen them glide one of the... One of the most amazing sort of observations in terms of their gliding capabilities is I've seen them jump from the top of a tree and just do like three three uh, turns around the tree where they were just following the trunk around wow. the trunk and then land on the same tree again. Huh. So they're they're really maneuverable. It's not really it's not like parachuting. It's not a really passive thing. They know right where they're going. Yeah. And they can turn and do everything else they need to do in order to land properly. And I've seen some of these guys like on different, you know, nature specials or, you know, papers that I've read and they have really cool color and patterns sometimes just on one side of the wing, sometimes on both. So what are they using wings for in that instance? Like why are the wings colorful? There's some obvious things that they're clearly doing and then there are some more speculative, you know, um, uh, ideas about what the what the wing color is for. The thing that it's absolutely being used for is territory interspecific intrust sorry intraspecific display display within the species to other to other individuals of the same species mm-hmm. males typically have the vibrant vibrant coloration on the wings females often have drab coloration on the wings and uh, and the males will often use their wings as part of their display mm-hmm. so they're territorial they defend territories they have multiple trees that make up one of their territories and if another male tries to intrude on the territory it usually begins with display and they not only have the wings, but they also have something called a dewlap on the throat, which is a big flag on the throat, which they can open and close. And those canard wings are also used as part of their display, the Sweet. neck wings. So they can open that little wing up and show some color there as well, usually. And uh, so they'll display with the wings. They'll often turn to the side and show off as much of that wing as possible. Mm-hmm. And the most, the most uh, 
the most complicated color is on the dorsal surface of the wing, and that's the side oh, of the okay. wing they're showing when they're displaying to another male or to a female if they're courting the female. Uh, if and the underside of the wing, as you said, is also often colorful, but usually it's it's either yellow or orange, mm-hmm. um, and often with some black spots and things. And and it's not really clear exactly why that that color is there, whether it's there for a reason or whether it's not there for a re- it's just random. Well, but you, you know, think it's, it would be. Right? It's possible it's that like, that's something it's an that investment. Yeah. Like, hey, I'm a big colorful male. Step off. Like, you probably can't handle this. Exactly. I like it. Back okay. off. Back. <laughs> off. Um, So you talked about how you're interested in comparative biology and there's these traits like coloration on wings. How do you actually go about measuring these traits and actually kind of quantifying or measuring differences in these things? Like what do you actually study in these guys in terms of when you go out in the field, what are you looking at? Yeah, the the comparative work that I've done with flying lizards thus far was really associated with the scaling relationships and with the gliding performance. And uh, and the way that we studied that was, was kind of fun so the scaling relationships we took we took lizard specimens lizards that had been that were in museum collections that were preserved with their wings open and for which we had known body mass data from when they were when they were captured uh, we scanned them and uh, and then I would use you know software to measure the, the the surface area the gliding performance trials were were actually pretty hilarious and difficult <laughs> and frustrating. And so, you know, I was going off to the forest. So initially I thought, oh, we'll do these gliding trials like in the lab. And so I actually was, I successfully returned from the Philippines with uh, about a dozen or 15 Draco spilopterus, the very first, uh, it's a species of Draco from the Northern Philippines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I thought, well, we'll get our preliminary data on gliding performance with these lizards. And I, and I'd like set them up, you know, I'd read, I mean, I, I'd read in the literature that, you know, somebody had documented they had they brought one on a boat and they put the Draco on the leg of a table and it would glide back <laughs> and forth between the table this? legs. <laughs> yes, exactly. It's not this was not a rigorous phylogen. You know, <laughs> this was a paper that was that was talking about like um, historical anecdotes regarding the gliding performance of flying lizards and so right. that, yeah that they did glide. Okay. There was arguments in the in the old literature about whether Draco would glide at all, whether the wings were only for display. Oh, and okay. and uh, of course that was you know. Local people don't call them Chichak Karbang for nothing, which means flying gecko or flying lizard. <laughs> and so, you know, clearly if they'd ask the locals, they'd know they were gliding. Right. Um, but you know, in any event, I thought that I could just bring them back to the lab and set up a little pole that was about four feet high next to another little pole that was about four feet high and set a video camera in front of it and walk out of the room and they would like glide back and forth between these poles. And it turns out that they didn't do that at all. How many hours of videotape did you watch? nothing happening on oh i didn't watch any videotape because i would just walk back into the room and it was always on the same pole you know (laughs) it never glided from one pole to the other even once and and uh so that seemed uh that obviously was a was a failed experiment and then i thought well okay we need to do this outdoors done in situ done in situ in the field and so i started working in malaysia and um and so in Malaysia, the way that I did it is I, I found an area, I actually found a soccer field that was used by an Orang Asli, which is like a native um, native people of the Malay Peninsula. They had like a, a, a center that was on the edge of the forest where they could come and, and do things and play soccer. And mm-hmm. so uh, I was I got permission to use their soccer field as a gliding arena for doing gliding, gliding trials for flying lizards. And then the idea was to set up the video camera and aim it so that you could get the glide orthogonal to the glide trajectory, so perpendicular to the glide trajectory, and um, the the uh, anticipated glide trajectory. Mm-hmm. And so I had a takeoff pole and a landing pole. The takeoff pole was about six meters high, and the landing pole was about three or four meters high, and they were about ten meters apart. And I had my video camera, and I went out in the forest and I caught flying lizards. 
Catching flying lizards is not trivial. Yeah, tell us about it. Yeah, yeah. Tell the way me I, all about it. I catch flying <laughs> lizards by using uh, a blowpipe or a blowgun. So that's the that's the strategy for catching flying lizards. I mean, these are lizards that live in a very tall rainforest, and you have to be able to get them somehow. Yeah. I would I could catch them uninjured by shooting them with a blowgun with um with these balls made out of modeling clay, plasticine. <laughs> And so, yeah, so I spent many days, my, my typical day in the field in, in Malaysia was to spend about six hours walking through the forest, shooting flying lizards with my blowgun and catching enough of them that I could then use for gliding trials the following morning. Okay, so <laughs> you, were, you were there studying uh, flight of Draco for your PhD. What were, what were the results of that and how did that transition into this like whole career looking at the biogeography of Draco? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so ultimately, I was able to collect the gliding performance data for about 250 individual flying lizards. That was over the course of a few field seasons mm-hmm. after my false, <laughs> after right, my, yeah. my lost season. <laughs> and uh, for, I think, 12 species of flying lizards, spanning the whole size range from the smallest species to the largest, Draco maximus, the, the largest species. And, um, and because the, the gliding performance results were a very good match, to this, the expectations derived from the scaling study. So they scale isometrically, meaning they're scale replicas of one another. The big ones have much higher wing loadings, so they weigh a lot, a lot more per unit lift generating surface than, than do the little guys. And so they actually, the, the consequence for the lizards is that the big ones have to glide faster. So they have to start their glide higher on the tree. And a typical Draco glide, it's not just a, they don't just jump off the tree and go straight to their landing point. It starts with a ballistic dive where they're generating the velocity they need. So they go straight down. So they start by going straight down okay. usually, and then they and then they curl out into the equilibrium phase of the glide. That is so and cool. so I know. And off they go. And that equilibrium phase is at a relatively constant speed until they get to the landing point where they have to break before they land. And so the big ones require greater um, they, they have a, a longer ballistic dive before they can level out into the flat part of the glide. And that was shown by the gliding trials. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the consequence for that for flying lizards is that the small ones can hang out lower on the trees than the big ones. I was just thinking Which that. is very typical. So when you're walking through a Malaysian rainforest, the species that has the lowest wing loading is Draco Melanopogon. And that's the one that you often find at about you know two meters, six or seven feet up on trees. And they can still glide to a tree that's 10 meters away from that height. Wow. But a Draco Maximus that was at two meters, if it tried to glide, would just hit the ground. So body size really determines a lot for these lizards, where they are on a tree, how far they can glide, and how they glide. How does the differences in size carrying over to how they are distributed on trees, how does that relate to like their ecology? Is there different things that they're eating at different heights in the forest? How does that scaling of size interact with what they're doing? That we don't know. At really? this stage, that's beyond what we know. You said they're co-occurring in the forest, but they are partitioning out tree space based on like the big one's ability to fly. Like it they needs are. to be up higher. So the okay. interesting thing is that being large means that you really can't spend a lot of time low on trees. Mm-hmm. I mean, they do spend. I mean, they come to the ground. The females come to the ground to lay eggs. The males don't really seem to come to the ground ever. Uh, on their own of their own volition so they're always up in the trees but you still will see them lower on the tree you know occasionally and so essentially what it means is that the big ones are mostly confined to the upper halves of trees and the smaller species have the whole tree because there's nothing stopping them from going into the canopy Mm -hmm. and so what we typically find in a malaysian rainforest is that there's often two species that are utilizing the same microhabitat like micro microhabitat so 
how is it instinctual that they start gliding and flying from juvenile ages or is it a learned behavior doing anything about that like the actual ontogeny of yeah. the behavior also when do they start yeah. flying like because these like, baby lizards are so small they, they can't fly can they? <laughs> i'm sure they can yeah i mean i've seen i've seen the little babies gliding they can glide right away I mean, so I've seen the little juveniles that wow. still have a little bit of the of the like umbilicus yeah, the on their sac. on yeah. the, the yolk sac on their <laughs> on their belly, meaning they just hatch within a day or two. They can glide. Wow. They they can already glide. So they're they're doing it from the beginning. I mean, the first thing a Draco does is climbs the nearest tree. You know, when it hatches, That's and incredible. then from that point on, all of their movement through the forest is going to be through the air. Right, because these there's probably no parental care. Right, the, the no mom lays eggs, she leaves, they hatch. Okay, you're like in the world now, and you just you go to the tree. Wow. Exactly. Okay. That's exactly how it works. So there's no, I mean, there are plenty of lizards out there that do have parental care where yeah. they stay with the egg clutch, but Dracos are not one of them. So the female comes down, she lays her eggs on the ground, she gets back up on the tree as fast as possible. Does she cover her eggs at all? Is it Are they buried? How, how does she lay them? Yes, they're buried. Okay. So she digs a hole, she buries them, and then she runs up the tree again. You know, one of the things that's interesting, for most, they're territorial lizards, these flying lizards, so the yeah. males defend these territories, they're much more conspicuous. And usually in, in species of lizards that are territorial, the mortality rate for males is much higher than the mortality rate for females. They tend to have shorter lifespans yeah. because they're exposed to predators through their conspicuous displays and such. In the case of flying lizards, in the one study that's been undertaken, females have a higher mortality rate than males. Well, is it because they're going down because to the ground? Because they're the, they're the sex that has to come to the ground yeah. where they're exposed to potential terrestrial predators, which also provides some information about why gliding is valuable, right? If you can avoid terrestrial predators by gliding from tree to tree, then you know that enhances your survivor your survivorship. And in the case of these flying lizards, the females pay a penalty for having to come to the ground to lay eggs. So they're probably not too graceful on the ground having these like, you know, little wings that are all folded up on them. They probably aren't really great runners or... You know, on the one hand, so they're not sprinters. I mean, there are a lot of lizards out there that are really fast on the ground and very difficult to to catch. And they're not particularly fast on the ground, but when their wings are folded up, I mean, they don't really seem to get in the way much. And so they can run okay. And the thing that they do, though, instead of like running just top speed off into the distance when they fall out of the tree, they tend to run and hide in some way. And usually (laughs) there's a lot of leaf litter and other sort of vegetation, and they blend in very well. So they... They definitely move, and then they find some some secluded spot, and they st- and then they freeze, and it can be a real challenge to find them when they do this. Yeah. So they they move around pretty good, and then they're really cryptic on the okay. forest floor. So your current work is more focused on phylogeography. What is phylogeography, and how did you get started in this subject? Yeah, so phylogeography is the the study of how usually it's a within species sort of study, or it might span multiple species, but you're definitely thinking about the distribution of individuals within the the larger geographic range. Mm -hmm. And so the question becomes, how did the species come to be distributed where they are, even at the population level? Um, in the case of my my current phylogeographic work that I've been doing with flying lizards, it's pri- it's primarily focused on this island called Sulawesi. Uh, the flying lizards occur across the entire island, uh, yet they exhibit a lot of uh, genetic structure across the island, where different parts of the island have been, you know, colonized at different times, and we can try to infer, you know, how that distribution was assembled over evolutionary time using using genetic data. The flying lizards that occurred at the southern end of this gigantic island, it's a thousand kilometers long, they looked one way, they had black wings, and they looked very different than the flying lizards at the northern tip of the island near Monado, yeah. where, you know, a thousand kilometers away. And we didn't have any idea what happened in between. 
Did they look the same? Did they merge in the middle? Did they did they integrate with one another and, and just sort of merge is, into one another? And this is all one species, right? At the time, it was considered to be one species, okay. Draco lineatus, yeah. uh, with some subspecies. But we didn't really have a very good idea of how those, what their relationships really were. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'd sampled them at the southern end of the range, and I sampled them at the northern end of the range, and I knew that they looked really different. But I didn't really know what happened in the middle, and I was very intrigued by by, by looking at this. What, what are some of the interesting patterns you're finding in the phylogeography of these lizards? Well, one of the things that we've discovered, so the, the species complex that we're looking at here, it includes, uh, cur- according to current taxonomy, there are nine species of flying lizards in this system. Uh, they're a monophyletic group, meaning that they're, you know, they're, they're all derived from a single ancestor. Uh, they're all more closely related to one another than to any other Dracos. And there are a lot of other Dracos that occur elsewhere off of Sulawesi. Mm-hmm. Um, so Sulawesi, the nine species include three on Sulawesi proper on this giant island, and then six more that have evolved on these little offshore islands that are adjacent to Sulawesi. So when Jim first went to Sulawesi, we thought that there was only one species of Draco that had different wing colors in the north and in the south. But after Jim explored the entire island and measured all of the traits we've talked about so far, including flight behavior, body size, wing color, genetic similarity, he found that this one species was actually three separate lineages with several subspecies. And that's phylogeography, tying together evolutionary history and geologic history to understand the history and formation of a species. And so ultimately, I, I revised the taxonomy of the group and recognized them as three species on Sulawesi, not one species with you know, two subspecies. Yeah. Um, and so that was sort of the starting point. But then as we did the genetic analyses, we discovered that each of these three species is itself potentially made up of what we call cryptic species. There's many genetically structured populations across the island, and they're quite divergent from one another. Species can be difficult to define and understand. Sometimes things look very similar, but cannot actually interbreed. This can lead to divergence or the evolutionary separation of these species over time. In cases where species look alike and act alike, but are not closely related, we call them cryptic species because their actual level of relatedness is cryptic or hard to tell. And so then the, the follow-up question became, are these structured, genetically structured populations that we have found across the island, are they actually species that just look identical to one another, uh, what we call cryptic species? Or was this just some kind of artifact? And really, there were three species. And we've discovered is that in most cases, those mitochondrially clustered, genetically structured groups across the island mm-hmm. are, in fact, cryptic species. Um, but maybe the most interesting part of the whole uh, the whole study is that two of these mitochondrially divergent groups don't actually appear to be cryptic species. There's this mitochondrial break that's quite deep that nevertheless is not really telling us anything about uh, about species boundaries. And if you look at the rest of the genome, or at least a good chunk of the rest of the genome, you find that it's homogenous. They look exactly the same. So for some reason, the mitochondrion is tracking what we think is a, a failed speciation event from the distant past. Mm-hmm. So what would that look like? What would a failed speciation event be? Can you kind of like walk us through maybe like what would be happening that might drive the start of a speciation event that then fails? Yeah, for sure. So uh, in the in the two cases that we're describing here, one of them is uh, is has kind of an underlying explanation that seems pretty obvious. So it 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 took place on the southeast peninsula of Sulawesi. So um, most of the people listening to this podcast are going to have no idea what Sulawesi looks like, uh, but it looks kind of like a K, <laughs> or it's been described as a drunken spider. It's an island with four peninsulas. So there's a big central core, and then there are four peninsulas that that 
run off in different directions and go for many hundreds of kilometers. (laughs) And uh, the Southeast Peninsula has uh, one of these potentially failed speciation events. It had one of these failed speciation events. And the failed speciation event seems to be uh, correlated with this um, this fault zone that occurs across uh, across the the southeast peninsula it's called the Lawanopa fault so our theory our working hypothesis is that in the distant past maybe on the order of you know three to five million years ago the dracos were unified across that southeast peninsula and they became separated from one another so maybe there was a a marine incursion or some kind of marine barrier that separated them so that they were now what was one population becomes two populations Mm -hmm. and sitting in isolation on their two separate islands they begin to change and diversify and the mitochondrion begins to accumulate these mutations that that distinguish the two these two groups Um, and one of the and then later these two islands merged again and when they merge, that really sets up what could be a really interesting, you know, potential outcome. Speciation is when one species diverges into two or more distinct evolutionary lineages. And it's a complicated process that can happen a lot of different ways in space and through time. Populations can be separated for a while and then come back together. Under normal circumstances, when a speciation event fails and once isolated populations that were beginning to diverge recongeal, it's unlikely to leave an obvious genetic signature, and we may never know that anything interesting had ever even taken place. However, in this case, some idiosyncrasy of the Draco mitochondrion has prevented it from merging, as has the rest of the genome, and the mitochondrion consequently continues to tell the story of this previous period of isolation. It's like a window into the past, allowing us a glimpse of an interesting process that would otherwise be hidden. What does what do you think your work means? So let's say you're talking to a non-biologist. I know, right? I know this question stuff. <laughs> talking to a non-biologist. What does your work tell us about the world we live in, species? Why does it matter? I often tell people that um, you know, one way you can look at it is, you know, that it's it's important to know something about everything that mm-hmm. in the world, right? I mean, nobody really asks a, an artist why they're painting pictures. Yeah. People appreciate the artwork for what it is. And I mean, I, and I'm really into this mostly for the knowledge, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's really, it's exciting to me to learn these things. Mm-hmm. And I'm, and I'm grateful that I get paid to study it, you know, but, you know, often I think that, you know, the impact that I'm going to have on the rest of the world is probably pretty low, except for the people who are interested in, you know, biogeographical processes on islands, you know. But like, I don't know, I just like evolution is a mystery and you're you're doing the detective work to figure out like how these things are distributed, why they look the way they do. I mean, it's Which, obviously it's a hard problem. You've been spending your whole life on it. And it can give us insights into even where we come from and yeah. all that kind of stuff. So, so <laughs> all those things happen. Important. And sometimes the the most, insi- you know, the, the really deep and important insights just happen by chance, mm-hmm. you know, like Same the samples day. that I collected on a mountain on Sulawesi might tell us something really important. You know, the people that were collecting bird eggs, you know, weren't really thinking at the time that that, that might solve the DDT issue, mm-hmm. you know, but but those samples were collected and they were necessary. Fortunately, enough people <laughs> care about about biogeography and such that we can do this sort of work for a career. I care. <laughs> I care. I care, too. Thank you so much, Jim, yeah. for joining us today. Thank you. It was fun. This has been Radio Bio with Dr. Jimmy McGuire. Thanks for listening. This episode of Radio Bio was produced by Lily Pennington and edited by Jackie Shea. The interviewers were Kinsey Brock and Jeff Lauder, and the episode artwork was drawn by Kinsey Brock. Radio Bio is supported by the Quantitative and Systems Biology Graduate Group and the Graduate Division at the University of California, Merced. For more information, you can visit our website at radiobio.net or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram.